This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. As the COP27 UN climate meeting wrapped up, newspapers blared triumphant headlines saying that finally rich countries had agreed to a plan to pay poorer nations for the damage they've caused from disproportionate fossil fuel consumption and carbon emissions. But the upshot is that the meeting did little to nothing on its main mandate to actually stave off climate change by phasing out fossil fuels. My guest is Osprey Oriel Lake, founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network and on the executive committee of the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature. She attended COP27 and has just returned from Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Welcome to the program, Osprey. Thanks for having me on your show. So these meetings go on for a couple of weeks. They often get extended. There's so many detailed discussions to be had. Let's focus first on the main one, which is that apparently rich countries have now agreed to fund uh, the to, to put money into the funds that uh, uh, poorer nations for years have been asking, you know, that many have sort of seen as a measure of climate justice. Tell us what happened on that front and if it is sufficient. Yeah, I think this was one of the uh, biggest breakthroughs we've seen on what's called loss and damage, which is exactly as you say, um, there is now a funding mechanism that will um, be there for vulnerable countries as they already are experiencing the impacts of the climate crisis. And it's been a huge call from vulnerable countries from wealthy countries to, to pay their fair share for the damage that they have caused because they are the biggest polluters. And um, so I think it was a victory in that sense. Civil society was very strong. Um, it's been a push by civil society for years and years. So finally this year, we do have a loss and damage mechanism that was in the final cover text. Um, but as you say, you know, the question is, is it sufficient? And of course, it is not. It's, um, you know, the, the victory is that we finally were able to accomplish uh, getting loss and damage into the text, but it's completely insufficient in terms of the amount of funds that are going to be needed to, to really care for and attend to vulnerable countries. And this needs to be on top of uh, the $100 billion that has been promised year after year by wealthy countries uh, to deal with the climate crisis. So yes, it was a victory, but I would say, you know, a lot of civil society has a tepid response because we'll see, you know, how much it really gets funded. Perhaps if this uh, this milestone had been reached, I don't know, five, ten years ago, um, maybe it would have been seen as a as a right step, and by now we would have been actually tackling the issue of fossil fuels. So what happened on that front? Well, climate change is here. There is no denying that. And in fact, most uh, nations' delegates have sort of stopped trying to deny that because the evidence is all around us. What action, if any, did the COP27 take on meeting the uh, milestones laid out in the Paris Accords um, and, and actually begin phasing out fossil fuels? Well, that was the, the very giant heartbreaking disappointment of the COP is that there was an opportunity. There was actually a, a push to, India started it to, to move beyond just calling to end uh, the expansion of um, uh, coal and include oil and gas. And for there to be 
a call from countries to phase out all fossil fuels. India began it, the UK entered, uh, the United States entered in other countries, many other countries. But ultimately, that was not in, um, in, in the outcome documents at all. It was not part of the text. And it was a tremendous disappointment because, um, as you say, you know, the climate crisis is escalating. We are seeing droughts, floods. Um, hurricanes. I mean, people are in a climate crisis. We saw the floods in Pakistan. I live in California where, you know, we are on fire here every year, literally with the forest fires. And to see um, there be such lack of ambition and transformative climate policies at this point is, um, you know, quite frankly, a disaster because we're past the point of incremental change. We need to phase out all fossil fuels now. And, and it should be noted that um, during the Climate Talks, Global Witness came out with a report sharing um, with all of us that there had actually been a 25% increase in uh, fossil fuel representation at this COP up from last year. Right. So there was 636 fossil fuel representatives, uh, which is one of the largest delegations that you see at the COP. So um, the fossil fuel industry was everywhere, and um, we were not able to accomplish the phase up that was needed. Um, and I, I understand that even though there have always been sort of fossil fuel lobbyists attending the meetings, that this year for the first time, executives and, and, and official representatives were invited to be part of the meeting um, in, in Egypt? Yes. So there's, you know, different levels of entry of conversation, but the, the, the role of the fossil fuel industry is just too big at these climate talks, which is why there's a whole movement that was actually started by the youth called polluters out. Like, what are they doing <laughs> at the climate negotiations? They should not be there. We need to be phasing out fossil fuels, not inviting the industry into be negotiating and being part of the conversation. So that has to change. Um, you know, I will say, uh, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the um, Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. And I think it's really important to bring this up because it became um, a stronger and stronger conversation at this COP. And it's basically a treaty calling for all countries to stop fossil fuel expansion, which is what we need to do if we're really truly going to meet the 1.5 degree target laid out in the Paris Climate Accord. And um, it was very exciting on a positive note because uh, the country of Tuvalu actually called for the fossil fuel treaty on the floor of COP27. And after that, the interest from parties really escalated. Um, there was multiple high-level bilateral as well as multilateral meetings that happened at the COP with over 25 countries. And uh, our organization is really honored to be on the steering committee of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which just has been growing and growing because we need um, a additional mechanism in addition to the Paris Climate Agreement to really phase out fossil fuels. And that with that's what this treaty is about. And it is gaining momentum. Countries are calling for it. And um, I think it's really important to understand that the Paris Climate Agreement does not include this phase out of fossil fuels. And so we need other instruments to really help countries move on this phase out. So just to be clear, then, it's uh, the Paris Accord set the goals, but not the mechanism to get there. Not, they didn't lay out specifically the pathway on how to meet those goals. And this non-proliferation treaty would? 
Yes, it does. And I think, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement could, you know, we tried really hard to get phase out into um, the agreement this year. The, the Paris Climate Agreement could do that, but it's not. It's mostly dealing with emission reductions, which is also very, very important. But we also need to deal with the source. We need to also deal with the supply. Right. Because emission, if you just focus on emission reductions, then it opens the door for these new untested technologies around carbon capture. Exactly. And geoengineering and a lot of uh, different technologies that we don't even know if they work yet. It's very dependent on um, instruments and mechanisms and technology that are not really in place. Um, and I would also say that uh, I think the treaty is really important because we don't have, as we can see, COP after COP 27 years later, that the politics are not there. The politics are not there to take on the fossil fuel industry. Um, I hate to say it, but, um, you know, we need to keep pushing. The COP is very important. It's a very important place for us to lift our voices and to make demands on governments. But we also need to look at other arenas that we can move forward our agenda because we're simply out of time. We're in a climate emergency and we're out of time. Tell me about the role of uh, activists on the ground at the COP. Generally, historically, you've had climate justice activists um, really put pressure on the delegates who are in the halls of power from the outside, uh, try to shame them, try to push them, try to, uh, you know, really be allies to any delegates who might be on the inside pushing for climate justice and, and addressing climate change. This year, what was it like um, for those on the outside? I know your organization has, has been both inside and outside, but give me a sense of what's been outside. Well, I will say that there were a lot of constraints um, at this particular COP, given um, the um, Egyptian government. And so most all of the activity happened inside the COP because we were not allowed to protest on the streets. We were not allowed to have actions outside of the COP. So there was a lot of solidarity across all the different constituencies of civil society with actions every day. I've, there was just tremendous amounts of actions every day sanctioned by the UN, um, demanding keeping fossil fuels in the ground, um, putting forward indigenous rights, uh, demanding uh, uh, gender responsive climate policies. All across the board, there was just an amazing solidarity with also African countries, since this was the African COP, and really supporting um, civil society and grassroots groups in Africa. Uh, in particular, we were really uplifting the African Feminist Task Force and their demands for climate justice. So civil society was very, very strong. Um, there was a lot of indigenous peoples. Um, I think that was very important. Uh, we need to remember that 80% of the biodiversity left on earth is in the lands and hands of indigenous peoples. And the way indigenous peoples have been caring for forests, caring for their lands, caring for the waters is essential. And so I think it was um, very important that we heard from indigenous leaders. We can brought indigenous leaders from uh, Brazil and Ecuador and the DR Congo and across the Americas to really have their concerns heard, but also to demonstrate how we need to have a different relationship with nature. And so I think it was really important that there was a highlighting of indigenous voices as well as 
frontline leaders from all over the world. And of course, as a women's organization, we were really ensuring that women's leadership was centered. Um, I want to note that um, we did release several reports during the COP, and I think this issue of decolonization is important. Lifting up feminist leadership is important. We need racial, economic, and social justice at the center of these uh, climate talks. And we were highlighting that, um, just as one example, study have shown that just a one unit increase in a country score on the Women's Political um, Empowerment Index, it's associated with an 11.51% decrease in the country's carbon emissions. So we need to understand that the role of women is also key to uplift at these climate talks. And it's very unfortunate because a UN study shows that 74% of the speaking time at these climate talks is done by men, when we know study after study is showing that women's leadership is core and central to climate solutions. And I could go on with stats about that, but it's very disappointing that we still see such unequal gender parity at these climate talks, and it really needs to change. Or Osprey, is the forum that the COP offers, these big global meeting, is that the right forum? I mean, increasingly it's being it's coming under criticism that that these end up being a massive waste of time and energy and effort and of course carbon emissions because everyone's flying out to one part of the world and the results are not necessarily worth the trouble. Uh, that we're seeing a lot more progress on local scales, um, you know, and, and that trying to wrangle these huge uh, forces, whole nations to agree with one another is uh, losing proposition. Um, as someone who's attended these numerous times, how do you how do you feel about that? Well, uh, it, there's a whole um, wide range of, of uh, responses to that. but. Uh, a concise response would be that I think that, yes, a lot of activity and most of our effort um, in our organization and many civil society organizations is being done at a local level um, in our own countries and communities from community led solutions around agroecology to um, you know, planting forests to all the localizing of our economies and all the work that we need to do at home in our communities is front and center, and I couldn't agree more, that we need to localize our work and, and work at the national level as well as the community and local level. That said, I also think it's important that we continue to advocate at the COP because this is the international space that we have. There's not another platform that really involves all countries where all countries have an equal say. And um, I tried to imagine us not being on the ground and how much more awful it would be if we were not demanding 1.5 degrees, as an example. That push that happened in uh, Paris happened because of civil society's presence and our push along with vulnerable countries. That 1.5 degree guardrail is essential in our advocacy work, whether we're dealing with financial institutions or governments. Um, again, this loss and damage victory is a lot because of the presence of civil society. So, civil society. so um, even though it's it's not the place where we're going to find all of our solutions, it's a component of the overall of ecology of the work that needs to happen. So I would say we need to do both. And even though it's incredibly frustrating and difficult, we're that this is the process that we have. And it's not the only place, but it is one of the places we need to do our work. 
What about the role of the United States at the COP? Um, how did the Biden administration play a role? Did it play any kind of a constructive role, given that President Biden ran on a platform uh, for, of being a climate champion, came into office paying lip service to, you know, really phasing out uh, fossil fuels and having a renewable energy revolution in this country, even though, of course, here in the United States, some of his actions around releasing more oil and gas into the economy to lower prices is, uh, goes against those promises he made. What did he do on a global scale at the COP27? Well, it's complicated as always. I mean, on the one hand, um, you know, there was sort of this sense of coming in on a victory lap with the um, IRA having passed. And, you know, there are components of that that are important. But, you know, there needs to be an understanding that, um, you know, how we are viewed by other countries is, is very challenging because we are an incredibly wealthy country. We are one of the biggest polluters of carbon emissions. And rightly so other countries and civil society is saying where's our contribution to the 100 billion dollar fund we have not really come up with the money that we should be putting into these funds to mitigate uh the climate crisis um and i i think that you know the conversation uh went a little bit better than i thought the you know we we did have the united states uh move forward with loss and damage um, which it, the United States has not been favorable to loss of damage in the past. And the other thing that I found interesting is that um, when there was a push by India to include phase out of fossil fuels um, in the text, um, the United States agreed to that. And we are definitely going to use that as we continue our work here in the United States with the Biden administration, that they were a part of that push for a phase out. So what does that mean at home when we have, as an example, the fight with um, Enbridge's Line 5 that is being pushed through right now? Um, and, and what are we going to do? For, are we going to continue to be expanding fossil fuel in our own country, the Mountain Violet Pipeline? There's a lot of pipelines still here that are um, now, um, now being um, addressed and we need to do something about stopping our own expansion of fossil fuels in the United States if we're going to really be showing the world that we are demanding a phase out. It's got to start first at home. So we're going to definitely be using uh, some of what happened at the COP to push for our national agenda here. Um, I, the last thing I would say is I think that, you know, Biden needs to call for climate emergency. We need to be doing so much more in addition to phasing out fossil fuels. We need to be investing more in local community-led solutions. We need to really understand also that, you know, as we're calling for renewable energy, there's going to have to be a serious discussion here in the United States, but all over the world on indigenous rights and on um, ensuring that as we mind for all the materials that will be needed for this renewable energy, that we don't continue the colonized version of what we did with fossil fuels, which is to extract um, on, on, on uh, what, what have been called sacrifice zone or sacrifice, sacrifice zip codes. Um, we really need to change our agenda around uh, what does it mean to have climate justice and where is this extraction taking place, whether it's fossil fuels or the materials for renewable energy, we need to really change deeply how we understand 
who and what lands we are um, we are developing for our energy needs. And I think that discussion has not happened at the level that it needs to. Uh, Osprey, give out the uh, give out a website for the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network and where people can find out more about the work you do. Thanks so much for asking. It's at WECAN, W-E-C-A-N, and then the word international spelt out.org. So WECAN international.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you. My guest has been Osprey Oriel Lake, founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. She's also on the executive committee of the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature. She's just returned from Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, as the COP27 meeting on climate ended. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at our you with Sonali.